want to quickly announce something that's coming up, probably one of our most important 633 Sunday night apologetic nights that we maybe have ever done. Our special guest is Pastor Christian Ionescu. He hails from Romania, and he was a religious refugee from Romania in the late 80s. He grew up in what he would describe as a beautiful monarchy, a uh, country that was doing very well, that was uh, prospering in many different ways. And then communism came. And with communism and socialism and Marxism, the whole country changed, and he was forced to flee as a religious refugee to the United States. And through his odyssey, Pastor Ionescu became a pastor of a church in Chicago, Illinois. And during the COVID uh, time, the city of Chicago harassed his church. He kept meeting during COVID. The city blocked the parking lot of the church, towed cars away that were parking around the church, attempted to levy fines against the church. And Pastor Ionescu said he, they didn't know who they were dealing with because I came out of communist Romania. So they started fighting back. And they have had a lawsuit. And now they're doing a building program. And Pastor uh, Christian would tell you that the city of Chicago is being very nice to them right now. And that's good. There's been a change. But I will tell you this. He has a message for us on August 22nd, Sunday night. This is one you don't want to miss. He's coming all the way from Chicago. And his message is that we're on the brink in America. The push for communism, socialism, and Marxism is coming. And one thing I, I, I heard Christian say in an interview, he said that this, this whole push culminated in an infiltration of the church. And the church became weakened because people began to infiltrate the church and the church became divided and weak. And when it was time to stand up and fight, there was nobody to fight because the church had been so weakened. Now, let me ask you, brothers and sisters, you see the same thing happening right now? And Pastor Christian is saying that we're, we have hope, but we need to understand the times and know what we ought to do and how to navigate the times. And I do see pockets of hope. I do see people standing up. And if you've ever wondered, what is socialism? What is communism? What is Marxism? What does it accomplish? Take a look at Cuba. Take a look at China. Take a look at any country that embraces this. It never works. It always destroys a country. Why people in our leadership are pushing it here, I have no idea. But I'll tell you what, it is time for us to be really praying, have our eyes open, be salt and light, and know what we ought to do. And one thing that we need to do is be aware of what's going on. Mark your calendar, August 22nd, 6.33. It's called On the Brink. Invite friends and family. It's going to be a very important night. We're in Exodus 13. We're beginning at verse 17. Let's pick it up together. Exodus 13, 17. Now, it came about when Pharaoh had led the people, let the people go, that God did not lead them by the way uh, of the land of the Philistines, Exodus 13, 17, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and they return to Egypt. Now, the logical way to lead Israel into the promised land, remember they had been in Egypt for 400 plus years, the next country to the north is Israel. And if they would have taken what's called the Via Maris, that's Via and then M-A-R-I-S, an ancient coastal highway, 
it would have taken them about two weeks to get into the promised land. But that's not the way they took. And the reason that they didn't go that way was that God knew that they were not ready to face war. And the Philistines were a very warring people, and they would have come against the Israelites. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, why wouldn't God just deal with the Philistines and wipe them out like he wiped out Egypt? Well, part of it is because the Philistines really had done nothing to Israel. Remember that Egypt's sin had stacked over decades and even centuries against the people of God. It had stacked all the way to heaven. And God says in Genesis 15, even the sin of the Amorite had not yet been complete. God waits. There's a time for judgment to come. And remember, what happened in Egypt was divine retribution. So God wasn't going to just deal with the Philistines in the same way. And he knew that the people were not ready for war. Now, there's an application right here I want to make clear. Sometimes we, we get saved, and we've been a Christian for six months, and we think we got it all figured out, right? All right, I've been a Christian for six months, so I should be able to run a church now and take care of everything here. I'm 12 now, mom and dad, and I, you know, I got it all figured out. But God knows what we're ready for and what we're not ready for. And his ways are not our ways. And even though Israel marched like an army, they looked like an army, they marched out of Egypt organized, they were not an army. They were not ready to fight. And we need to be prepared to fight, but that's going to take time. You're going to grow in your faith, and as you grow in levels of spiritual maturity, you'll be more apt, more able to fight the spiritual battle, and we are in a spiritual battle. And the key is to put on the armor of God every single day. But remember, Israel was just learning. They were just coming out of Egypt. Egypt was all they had known for 400 plus years. And God knew that they weren't ready. So he led them the illogical way, at least according to human logic. The logical way was to go the way of the sea. That was the shortest way. But I will tell you, even though it was near and the shortest way, the shortest way is not always the best way. And it's certainly not always God's way. Amen? Amen. See, God knows what we need at a given time. And if you've ever, maybe you're an insomniac and maybe you've uh, had some nights when you can't sleep well, there are a lot of commercials on late night television that will tell you the shortcut to just about everything. For three easy payments of $19.99 for the rest of your life. You can make me rich and I'll show you how I became wealthy in real estate, in this and that. And we're like, oh. And you know, when you're lacking sleep, sometimes some of you have pulled the trigger, huh? Some of you have old VHS things. I bought some on memory stuff, you know? Any, anybody take the bite on the memory stuff? Anyway, never mind. I, I forgot what year it was when I... You did it, anyway. <laughs> Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Do you believe that? And the path that he directs may not always seem logical to us. Anybody watching this would say, go up the coast and go into the promised land. But that's not the way that God had for them they took the long way home. How many of you remember the song by Supertramp? This will date you, but it's dating me as well. So 
Here's a few of the lines from the song. It's not a very deep song, and it's not a very edifying song, but here's one of the lines. It says, when your wife seems to think that you're part of the furniture, it's peculiar. She used to be so nice. <laughs> That's all I've got for you, because really, <laughs> sorry, we do have marriage counseling available if you, but... I'll just say this. <laughs> Sometimes God takes us on a road that seems illogical to us, but he has a goal in mind. There's a way that seems right to a man or to a woman, but that way can lead you to death. Be careful in life with shortcuts, even spiritual shortcuts, because I will tell you, there are no shortcuts to becoming mature in Christ. Amen? There is work to be done. There's Bibles to be read. There's prayers to be prayed. There's worship to be given. There's the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. There's things that we do to honor the Lord even when everything in us wants to go the other way. This is the way that God has for them. And so he knew what they were ready for, what they weren't ready for, and about a year later, turn to Numbers, which is just two books to write, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers 14. This was proved out, Numbers 14, just to show you how fickle the people were. All the congregation, Numbers 14.1, lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. 14.2 of Numbers. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land? To fall by the sword, 14.3. Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Back to Exodus it was in the people's hearts to be fickle. And I don't think it would surprise any of you to know, because I think we all wrestle with this, how fickle we can be and how easily we can be attracted to return back to our Egypt, in quotes. And what I mean by that is to go back to our old ways, to go back to slavery, to the old vices and the old things. And the, the people of Israel did this on several occasions. And one of the things that they said is, well, at least in Egypt, we got to have a double-double on Friday with grilled onions. That's a loose translation right there. But they remembered, hey, Friday was burger day, man. And they gave us a side of onions with it. Yeah, but you have, you have scars on your back. You were a slave. You were doing the mud dance for the Pharaoh. Do you remember how many times you cried out for freedom? Yeah, but you know, yeah. But uh, Egypt, we, we could have a steak and you know. And we remember the good old days of our sin. Here's the problem. There weren't any good old days. Or the enemy will get you to focus on a few snapshots of fun and get you to forget the aftermath of the decisions that you made and the fallout that probably is still with many of us to this day. Be careful, because our hearts can often be pulled back to Egypt. And that's what happened with the people. And there is certainly a spiritual lesson for us. 
Now, the word repent in the Bible is an interesting word. In Greek, it's metanoia, change of mind, change of heart. In Hebrew, it's the word shuv. If you're taking notes, it's S-H-O-O-V. And shuv, if you look it up in the Hebrew picture language, it's a really neat image. It means to destroy the house. Let me explain. In the ancient world, when an army would come in and uh, they would win a war, they would take captives of war, and they would march them up often to the brow of a hill. And they would have them look back on their homeland and they would burn their entire homeland. As if to say, you are our captives of war and there is nothing left for you to go back to. We're burning it all. So don't have in your mind they're coming back to a, a homeland. This is why the enemies of Israel even destroyed their temple. Don't think you have anything to come back to. And this is the word repent. Now please hear this well. When you truly repent of sin in your life, you burn the house, you destroy the stuff so that there's nothing to go back to. How many times in our lives have we said, oh Lord, deliver me from Egypt, deliver me from the taskmasters, deliver me from my slavery to sin, only to leave the stuff of Egypt behind so that we can easily go back to it. Now you can make your own application here, but I think you can see the point. And I think part of what God is doing here when he devastates the whole Egyptian army is to say to Israel, you have nothing to go back to. In fact, remember, those of you who have been with us, in Exodus 10, I believe, Egypt was already ruined. What were they going back to? Egypt was devastated, destroyed, humbled. And sometimes, you know, we don't see the world that way. Our world is reeling right now. We watch people give us an answer, then change the answer. And we're like, who do you listen to? What do you believe anymore? And God's message to the people of Israel is, I'm leading you out, and Egypt is not even going to be an option. And why would it be an option? Haven't you seen what I did to the Egyptians? But we can be so fickle in our hearts, right? So apt to uh, remember the snapshots of the good old days and be tempted to return. Keep in mind that 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 13, Paul, if you're taking notes, writes that we should learn from the wilderness wanderings of Israel. That's for the New Testament church. 1 Corinthians 10, especially verse 6. We're to learn from their mistakes. And God led them out through a different way. He led them, 18, hence God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. Some of you who have studied this have heard the debate that some people say this is the Reed Sea. I don't think there's any good evidence for that. I think this is the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array. They marched like an army, but they weren't ready to fight, and they went up from the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph, with him, for he, that's Joseph, had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God shall surely take care of you. This is a prophecy from Joseph. God's going to take care of you. And this is about 200 years before all of this occurred. And you shall carry my bones from here with you. I'm just going to park here and quickly comment on this. If you want more on this, you can read the end of Genesis chapter 50. When Joseph is getting ready to die, he has a request of his people. He knew that eventually they would lead, God would lead them into the promised land, and he wanted his bones to be moved there, and this would be a couple centuries later. 
And you might ask, well, why would Joseph do that? Let's just quickly talk about Joseph. Joseph got sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, ends up in Egypt. He's in slavery, but through a series of events that many of you are familiar with, Joseph rises up to be a leader in Egypt, and he actually is a hero in Egypt. Because he saved the people from famine. He had insight from God as to what they should do. And he was a national hero. And of course, he was really a savior figure also for the people of Israel. Preserving the nation as they went down in a time of famine to Egypt. That's how they ended up there. But Joseph knew that Egypt was not his home. And so even his bones he wanted carried into the promised land. And if you're interested, write down Joshua 24, 32, because Joshua is the one that finally buries his bones in the promised land, anticipating what, brethren? The resurrection. See, the Jewish people believed in the resurrection, and we believe in the resurrection, amen? We believe that we're going to rise again and inherit the promises, And if you've ever gotten a chance to go to Israel, on the Mount of Olives, when you're coming down towards the area of the Temple Mount, there's a huge cemetery there. And I'm told that people pay outrageous amounts of money to have their bodies laid to rest there on the slope of the Mount of Olives. And here's the thinking. When the Messiah returns and goes through the eastern gate and plants his feet on the Mount of Olives, if you're buried there, you'll be the first to get to see him, maybe even hug him. So people pay big money. But I will tell you this, there is a lesson to be learned for many in our culture who believe that death is the end and there's no resurrection. And the Jewish people teach us something about the preserving of the bones, ossuaries and things that get dug up all over the world because their treatment of the body, please please hear this, anticipates the resurrection. And I'll say this, This is not an issue of salvation, but it is an issue of anticipation of what's ahead. Joseph believed that he would rise in a new body and enjoy the promised land, though he never got to really realize it for himself. And one day you're going to rise, and your loved one who's passed before you is going to rise, and they're going to get a new body, and death will die in the resurrection. And Joseph believed that, and Jesus preached it, He said, because I live, you will live also. I'm preparing a place for you. We're going to the promised land. Come on. Oh, never mind. Anyway, you're still stuck on I took the long way home. I I get it. Anyway. And so I just want you to see the promise here. And one day Jesus said, we will sit down in the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. And so they set out from Sukkot, that's verse 20, Exodus 13, camped in Etham. We don't know where these places uh, were in the ancient world, but we know Etham was on the edge of the wilderness, so this would be leaving inhabited Egypt. And the Lord was going before them. How, how were they led? Well, he was there, was the Lord, in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And God did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now, not only were they delivered with 10 mighty plagues, but the very presence of God was among the people, manifested in something that's been called the Shekinah glory of God. Scholars would call this the manifest presence of God. 
This appears throughout our Bibles, and often God's presence would descend on the tabernacle and the temple. And it would be a way that God would make himself, you could say, somewhat visible, although the full glory of God would not be on display because no one can see God in his full glory and live. Go all the way to Exodus uh, 40. This is the last verses of the book. I want you to see the faithfulness of God. He never departed from the people. He led them all the way through. It says, Exodus 40, 34, the cloud, the glory cloud covered the tent of meeting, Exodus 40, 34. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. God led them in the way. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me and guides me and He leads me to the places that he wants me to be so that I can be refreshed and encouraged and blessed. And I can even do things for his namesake. And so the Lord led them. And you could think, well, maybe there were some practicals like having shade in the desert, the the cloud and the fire, maybe for warmth. But the Bible doesn't specifically say that. It says the cloud led them. It was a visible way to say God wants us to go here or there. Here's an application for us. The Holy Spirit now lives in us, brethren. Jesus said the Holy Spirit will be with you and then in you, John 14, 17. In 1 Peter 4, verse 14, Peter says that when you're being reviled, the Spirit of God, the glory of God rests upon you. And so that same power, that same light that led Israel by day and by night lives inside of you. And when you need direction, And when you are wondering, what should I do and where should I go? You are to walk by the Spirit. You are to walk in the light. Amen? You are to walk in the way. The same application is to you and to me. That same glory will lead you, will empower you, if you will allow him to lead you. A couple other insights. Look at 1419 of Exodus. A couple of just snapshots of things interesting about the cloud. It says the angel of God, Exodus 14, 19, who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. So we can see that the angel of the Lord was within that cloud or part of that manifestation. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Uh, Check out verse 24. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. That's our next message. We won't go there for now. I just want you to get a couple of insights that this is not just simply a fire from the Lord. The Lord is in the fire with the people, leading the people, manifesting his glory so that they would know that he was with them, that he was leading them, that he had not forsaken them. And this is going to be important because the way that they go seems confusing. Why not go right up the coast 
into the promised land, well, God had another plan. And as I mentioned before, he knew what they were ready for. If you want to write down Romans 9.4, one of the uh, blessings that the Israelites got, Romans 9.4, was the adoption and the glory. And most believe that's the Shekinah, the glory cloud, or the kavod. The weightiness of God was there. Now, 14.1. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pi-Hahiroth, Exodus 14, 2, between Migdal, which could be in Watchtower, and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal Zephon. That could be Baal of the north. He was worshipped in these regions as well, oftentimes on a mountain, opposite uh, it by the sea. So a couple of locations that are given there. Uh, if Migdal, Migdal means Watchtower, uh, what we probably could infer from this is that the Egyptians had watchtowers placed strategically throughout the desert. That would allow them to see oncoming enemies and to track Israel's movements. And surely what was happening is that there were people reporting back to the Pharaoh the movements of Israel. I'm sure he was still you know, interested and uh, you know, curious about what was happening. And Pharaoh, God, God says this, when I put my people against the sea on the edge of the wilderness and against the sea, the Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, God anticipating now, they are wandering aimlessly in the land. He's going to get reports like this. And the wilderness has shut them in. Thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart, 14.4, and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. That is, Israel moved in the direction that God had for them and God was about to harden Pharaoh's heart once again, and God would be honored. Now you might say, well, who would be left of Egypt to know that God was the Lord? <laughs> well, there would still be people left in Egypt, and there's probably some debate as to whether or not Pharaoh actually enters into the sea and is one of the victims as God drowns them in the sea. But whoever was left would know. But here's another thought. In Joshua 2, when they're going into the, the land of Canaan, Rahab the harlot says, we've heard about you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the sea and you passed through it. And we heard how you dealt with the Egyptians and our hearts melted in fear. See, through the caravans, there was talk about this mighty God of Israel. And God was honored both in the deliverance of his people and God can be honored in the judgment of his enemies. In fact, brethren, a day is coming when exactly that is going to take place. God is going to rescue his people and bring them into the promises. And he, there's going to be a day of the Lord judgment and he's going to judge his enemies. And he will be honored in all of the above because life is about the glory of God. And so in this final victory, God would gain the glory. It appeared to the Pharaoh as he got uh, word that Israel was wandering aimlessly, had no leader, but this was simply a battle tactic. When Jesus died on the cross, surely Satan and his minions had to be thinking, oh, we got him now. There he is. God the Son has allowed himself to die on the cross. Surely it's over now. But God used the cross as the instrument of his greatest victory, for us at least, and he triumphed over principalities and powers through the cross, that's Colossians 2.15. So God will sometimes put us 
in a tough spot that looks hopeless, and he will turn it around for victory. And so Pharaoh would get the report. The king of Egypt was told that the people had fled. Well, surely he knew that, but he may have been in mourning. Remember, his own firstborn son, the prince of Egypt, had died. Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people. And they said, what is this that we have done, verse 5, that we have let Israel go from serving us? If you have an NIV, it says, we have lost their services. Oh, no, our slaves are gone. (laughs) Now i got to make my own bed, cook my own pancakes. How do you work this shovel? What are we going to do now? Now, you would think that maybe a righteous people would say, oh, isn't it nice that Israel's finally free? We can figure this out. I can poach an egg. I, I can figure out how to do laundry. Some of you, your mothers are like, no, they, they can't figure it out. Anyway, that's a different story. But what do they say? We've lost our slaves. We, we, we need them back so they can serve us some more. This is how the mind that is debased can think about other people. Not that Israel's free to serve their God and worship him the way that they ought, but no, we need to re-enslave them for our pleasure. Do you know one of the major epidemics in our world today is sex trafficking? They're saying that the United States of America is one of the worst culprits of it. What is happening that we would think that another human being is only there to service us, to take care of what we want, to be our slave? That is a tragedy, and it's not the way of the Lord. And thank God that we have ministries that are fighting against that. And so it's sick. It's sick. Maybe work stoppages, maybe uh, you know, the realization that they had lost their major workforce hit the people of Egypt, I don't know. But we do know the main issue here is that God hardened their heart and so the Pharaoh made his chariot ready and he took his people with him. Get my chariot! Boom! He hits the thing. Mount up! We're going after them. We're going to get our servants back. Now some of you have to be thinking, really? What is this dude thinking? Hasn't he taken enough punches to the face? His own firstborn son is dead. He's watched 10 mighty plagues happen. What could he be thinking? Well, in ancient religion and even some religions today, in the pantheon of gods and goddesses, here's what people thought. They thought that the gods and goddesses were much like people. They fought with one another. They vied for positions and power. Some of you know some modern movies show stuff like this. What's all those movies? The... uh, Avengers and all this stuff. And these are supposed to be godlike, uh, you know, creatures that fight one another. Well, that's kind of how the ancients thought of it. They, they thought that they were much like people. And so Pharaoh might have been thinking, well, since they're wandering aimlessly, maybe the God of Israel abandoned them. Maybe he threw 10 mighty plagues against us and uh, now he's gone. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he decided to take a couple of weeks off. Maybe he's tired after the 10th plague. This is the way that they thought. And it could have been the reasoning of the Pharaoh. That's some conjecture. And so they, he mounts his chariot. They took 600 select chariots. That's the top of the line. That's the ancient tank in the, in the world. Remember, Israel doesn't even know how to fight. They probably don't even know how to use weapons. Here's the strongest military in the world. 600 choice chariots. 
all and all the other chariots of Egypt with, the, with officers over all of them. And now they begin to march. They probably got thousands of chariots. We're going to see from other language here. Their army's been deployed and they are on the march. And Israel's on foot. And it's probably been only a couple of days, maybe a week or two at the most. And so Israel hasn't gotten far away from Egypt. And now the army's being assembled. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel as the sons of Israel were going out boldly. Now you can imagine the sons of Israel had to be having a good day or a good week, right? They went out, they had the jewels, they had everything. They're, they're going to the promised land. Everything, everything's cool, my day's going good. But all of a sudden you begin to hear something that sounds weird in the distance. It sounds like it could be an earthquake. It sounds like maybe galloping horses. And all of a sudden you look, and on the horizon comes the Egyptian army. And you look back, and your son's out there boogie boarding in the Red Sea. But there's no place to go. If you watch Cecil B. DeMille's depiction of this, Yul Brenner, who's the pharaoh, says, well, their God is a poor general, isn't he? He gave them no escape route, trapped against the Red Sea, and here comes the biggest military in the world. Let me ask you, brethren, how would you respond? You're having a beach day. You laid out your little blankie. You got your crackers and your grapes and everything. Maybe, you know, your umbrella and all of that. And all of a sudden, the mightiest army in the world is coming, and nothing between you and them except the only escape route is an ocean. And in the Jewish mind, the ocean, unpredictable and dark, at least this is some of the views of the ocean, was the last place you wanted to go to try to escape. And how would you do it anyway? Would you get in there and start swimming? Where are you going to go? Well, this is what Israel was facing. And so the Egyptians, uh, as we can surmise, chased after them with all their horses and chariots of Pharaoh. He had everybody there, it would seem. He had horses, he had chariots, he had officers, he had his army, horsemen and his army, and they overtook them camping by the sea. It didn't take long. Of course, they traveled swiftly beside Pi-Haheroth in front of Baal-Zephon. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, probably an impressive-looking army, And they became very frightened. And if you can put yourself there just for a moment, I'm not sure most of us could even process the fear of a group of people, a big group of people, but they were not militarily trained and they were stuck. And here comes this army. Now, sometimes when our enemies are coming at us, we forget what we just read about, that there was a pillar of fire and there was the cloud and God was with them. But sometimes we get so focused on the coming enemy, we forget that God's presence is with us. Amen? See, we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. Paul, using a running imagery from the Olympic Games, has this idea in mind. We're, in, we're to fix our eyes on the finish line, the God who's the... Uh, originator and perfecter of our faith instead of looking around at our other competition. And since we're in the middle of the Olympics, you know that if someone running 
looks around, they lose their pace, and they can get in big trouble. And in the moment, you, none of us can blame Israel. Would, you know, if you were there, I don't know how impressive your faith would be, but we've seen how impressive our faith can be in much smaller things, amen? Something goes wrong at work, on the freeway, in a relationship, and we're setting caravans back to Egypt, baby. Sometimes, do you realize how disappointed you can be with your own heart? How sometimes the smallest thing, you think you're a seasoned Christian and you run into some difficulty and it's nothing like this. It's not the Egyptian army and you're trapped against the sea and all of a sudden you see how weak your heart can be. But to Israel's credit, it would appear at least some of them, the first thing that they did, they became frightened. Look at the end of verse 10. And the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Give them credit. They didn't pray last they got afraid and they prayed. And when you're afraid, pray. Don't wait till you've done all of your, let's see if I do plan A, B, C, D, E, F, 1, 2, 3 on F, G, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 on G, and nothing else works. Then gulp, family, let's have a meeting, I guess. All we have left to do is pray. No, no, no. And Israel is given credit here in Nehemiah 9, 9 for praying. But as uh, J. Vernon McGee put it, they were still hopelessly trapped. He said they were caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. <laughs> and you could hear J. Vernon McGee say it. Trapped between the devil and the deep blue sea. What you gonna do now, brethren, my beloved? So sometimes we pray, but we're still in the situation. We pray, but we still feel trapped. And we're like, well, Lord, when are you going to move? I feel like a sitting duck here. But they prayed, but, and maybe this is a separate group of people, but they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? We told you. You know, when they left Egypt, remember the uh, Egyptians were digging graves for all their firstborn that had died. And maybe for some of the people, those graves came to mind. And some of the people might have said something like this. Just start digging graves because we're dead. We're dead. <laughs> the pessimists in the group, could you imagine? Dig my grave now. Give me a shovel. We're all dead. <laughs> all going to die. <laughs> and sometimes that's the attitude that we get. It's all over. Now, wait, wait a minute. That pillar of fire is over there. Did you, did you forget about that? Yeah, but we're dead. <laughs> yeah, I know he did 10 mighty you know, plagues in Egypt, but now, well, now we're dead. It's over. Don't you wish there wasn't a verse 11? And poor Moses. <laughs> you know, leadership is a tough gig because... Sometimes when people are not doing well and they're sulking, they blame leaders. Now, no leader is above criticism, and leaders certainly make mistakes, but sometimes leaders get the guff <laughs> of people who, the cause is other reasons. If, a, if the church in America ends up divided, it would be one thing if it's over substantive issues like essential doctrine, but it's quite another 
if we can't even get along with other churches and partner with other churches in our community. If we get separated from our other brethren and we don't stand together now, we're probably not going to stand at all. Amen? And so there's Israel, and Moses would say later in Deuteronomy, but for all this, all that God did for you, you did not trust in the Lord. And sometimes I find in my own times of prayer, oh God, forgive me. Help me to trust you. Help me not to go back to my own resources. And they said, is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt? By the way, we don't have a record of this. They may have said it. They may have just said it in the moment as they were sulking. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. You know, one of the saddest things I see in our world these days is sometimes a young person will get saved and a family member will tell them, Go back to Egypt. Don't bother with that Christianity stuff. That's very sad. I shared with you, uh, I had a a high school friend and I had become a Christian and I came to his house and we had done a lot of stupid stuff together and I told his dad that I had become a Christian and I wanted to become a pastor and he told me, no, don't do that. Anything but that. Thanks for the encouragement. But see, once you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, are you going to go back to Egypt? What's there? Egypt is decimated, and their whole army is going to drown anyway. There's nothing to go back to. And so here's a quote from an author that I think is fitting. What was most alarming was Israel's willingness to go right back into bondage. We often get tempted to do the same thing. God wants to bring us all the way out of our sins. Our problem is that we only come out part way. We decide to follow Christ, but as soon as we start having problems, we get scared and we go right back to our old ways of coping, anger, addiction, depression, distraction. No matter how much we hate it, there was a security in the way we used to live. In fact, for Israel, it's all they knew. So we return to the same old harmful friendships, the same old sinful attitudes, the same old nasty habits. And this is what Israel did in a time of pressure. And pressure often will bring out who we are. And brethren, we're going to have to steal our hearts right now. Here's what I mean by that. I don't know what's ahead of us, but we're going to have to stand strong and stand together. Amen? This is the reality of where we are. And we can be of good cheer because the same God that gave the victory to Israel will give us the victory. And so they said, didn't we tell you this? Didn't we say, we just want to stay in slavery. Don't don't try to deliver us. I don't want to hear that gospel stuff. (laughs) I I preach to some people and they say, uh, Oh, yeah, maybe on my deathbed I'll, uh, I'll give my life to the Lord. But here's the problem. In acknowledging a deathbed conversion, you're acknowledging that you believe in God. And what you're basically saying is that you're going to live your whole life for yourself. And then at the last moment, you're going to pray if you get a deathbed experience, which, by the way, is not guaranteed for anybody. And at the last moment, you'll pray the sinner's prayer so you can get into heaven while you live your whole life in rebellion to God. Hmm. 
Now, God is merciful and certainly saves people on the, their deathbed, but I think you get the point. Israel is about to get a faith lesson that I think will be forever written in their minds and hearts. And Moses, in maybe his greatest uh, leadership response to date, said to the people, and here's where we end, and if you heard nothing else, I have three words of encouragement for you. Moses said to the people, do not fear. Stand by. And then in verse 14, he says, keep silent. And the NIV says, be still. Now, the keep silent could be quit whining. (laughs) But the NIV has it this way. Don't be afraid, verse 13. Stand firm and then skip down to verse 14. Be still. Now, for some of you who are movers and shakers, that's one of the toughest things for you is to be still and know that he is God. You're not God, he is. And I came from the business world and I was a closer. I was an account executive. I love to close business deals. I like to make things happen in athletics and other areas of my life. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but spiritually speaking, the thing that you gotta realize is that God will often say, don't be afraid, stand firm, be still and watch. Now, some of you might say, and you could certainly hear the chatter among the people of Israel, Moses speaks those words. They sound wonderful, don't they? Don't be afraid, stand firm, be still. Yeah, wait a minute. The Egyptian army's still there. The sea's still here. Uh, How? (laughs) Some of you have been Christians for a long time, and you hear promises, and your next question is, how do you do that? I like how it sounds. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. Be still. Cool. How? The whole Egyptian army's right there. How? Well, Moses gives the answer. Take a look. You will see the Lord. You will see the deliverance. The Lord will bring you today. Look at the beginning of 14. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Here's the answer, brethren. The reason that you cannot be afraid or you don't have to be afraid, you can stand firm and you can be still is the Lord's gonna bring deliverance. And here's a word for you today. The Lord will fight for you today. You know, you hear a message like this and some of you start thinking about your life and what you should be doing and the enemy says, tomorrow. There's always tomorrow, and Annie's saying it. It's only a day away. Tomorrow. The Lord will fight for you today. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. The enemy says tomorrow. God says today. When we were on the corner of Lincoln and Ontario... We, the church was growing and we went to three services and some of you who remember those days we were parking on the grass and breaking fire laws and a pastor showed up. He was a visitor to the congregation one Sunday and he said to me, Pastor Michael, the Lord's doing a work in the church and I want to challenge you with something. I want you to pray for miracles. I want you to pray that the Lord will do miracles in this body. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Pray that he does miracles. Pray that there's a move of God. Don't you long to see that? He's the same God. 
We're all talking about revival. How about it starts with us today? How about your marriage improves today? Your prayer life today? If you haven't been saved, get saved today. If you haven't been serving, serve today. Enough with the tomorrow stuff. Jesus said, you don't even know if you got tomorrow, right? Today's got enough issues of itself. James says, you don't have tomorrow promise to you. Today. Now, when we often end a message like this, and we're going to have a time of the Lord's Supper, we do the final song, and you're all, I planted the thought in your head about a cheeseburger, and you're all, you know, you're thinking about it, and you're going to take the short way right to the restaurant. And I, and I praise God that we can do that. But if you forget what the Lord has spoken to you, and you don't decide to respond to his word today, you're going to go out the same way you came in here. And every week we have people, multiple people down here, and we're waiting to pray with you. And oftentimes only a handful of you come forward. And I know there's all kinds of needs in this room. Some of you need physical healing. Some of you are depressed. Some of you are broken. Some of you are going through tough stuff. Some of you need to pray with someone to make sure that you know the Lord or to re, you know, dedicate your life to the Lord, whatever it may be. This is your opportunity today. Today. That's what the Lord wants to do in your life is deliver you today. So my prayer for you we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, and then as Shane does this last song, it's going to be about this God we've been talking about. I invite you to come. Whether you need salvation, you're going to rededicate your life, you need prayer for healing, we're happy to anoint you with oil and pray over you if you're not doing well, and cry out to the Lord, and let's ask him to move today. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for the group that has gathered, thank you that we could celebrate Vacation Bible School and all you did this week. Thank you for the faithfulness of this congregation. Help us, Lord. Help me to hear your voice today, to follow you, to know your faithfulness, to know your love, your goodness, that you will never leave us or forsake us. You will lead us through the storms and the valleys and the fires Thank you that we can remember what Jesus did for us on the cross today as we partake of the elements together. Bless your people, Lord. Encourage their walk. Bless them, strengthen them in Jesus' name.